G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. All right, welcome to Who Killed Leanne Holland. This is a bit of a bonus episode. So Graham and I were talking recently and we decided to um, catch up and do a bit of a meeting. We have a few special guests with us today and Graham, we decided to call this Back to the Drawing Board. So why, why do we call it Back to the Drawing Board, mate? Jamie, um, last year, early November, Mark, a retired Victorian police officer, 20 years service, contacted me and said he had listened to the podcast. He wanted to review the evidence. Of course, I said, fine. What do you need? I sent him everything he needed, everything he asked for. And then earlier this month, March, he contacted me and said, I've finished and I want to come up and present it to you. And so here we are. Mark has gone to the trouble at his own expense of flying up from Melbourne, putting himself up in accommodation, to talk about what he found when he reviewed the evidence. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Jamie, your microphone just chose this moment to fail. For the record, he asked our guests, Mark and Jeff, to introduce themselves. I'm sure the listeners know Joe Crowley. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, yeah, I'm, my name's Jeff Johnson. Uh, as you've said, I've been a practising lawyer since 22 years of age, and that places me as having practised continuously for 55 years. Uh, in all of that time, it's been litigation, um, mainly commercial-based litigation, but over the years I've had some significant um, matters uh, that involved uh, criminal matters, and I've had three high court appearances and one privy council appearances, in fact, the last Privy Council uh, case uh, taken from Australia was done by our little little firm from the Gold Coast. So that's been a good wine-ranging experience. And uh, having now retired, uh, the involvement of the Seekers cases kept the grey cells turning over and hopefully at the end of the day uh, um, 
whatever I've done has been in the interests of justice. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Uh, my name's Mark Adlam. Uh, I was involved uh, with the Victoria Police as a, uh, a member for coming up to 20 uh, years uh, in various roles, uh, general duties mainly. I was a defensive tactics and uh, instructor uh, there for a short time and then finished off at East Gippsland as a sergeant, helping uh, supervise a lot of troops between Bairnsdale and uh, Mallacoota Can River. So I was a country copper there for a while and have since, uh, after I retired, I'm doing a fair amount of uh, personal training, physical personal training, and uh, thoroughly enjoying that in retirement. Yeah, thank you for, for all your hard work, Mark. Yeah, no worries. Uh, as uh, Graham said, um, I was only made aware of this through my ex-next-door neighbours who said, oh, look, you're listening, we've been listening to a podcast about uh, this thing, Who Killed Leanne Holland? And I kind of brushed it off, to be honest, at the start, and then thought, look, okay, look, I'll listen to an episode. So I listened to that episode, and obviously I uh, did a bit of a night binge on it, listened to half a dozen episodes, and then eventually got through all of the episodes, uh, and then thought at the end of it, look, I'll leave it alone for a few weeks and just take in all what I'd uh, heard. And then uh, subsequently decided to listen to it all again. But this time, much to my wife's annoyance, I put butcher's paper all up on our bedroom walls, all four walls, and made copious amounts of notes, which uh, Graham's got in his possession now. Uh, and then, yeah, I just became enwrapped with uh, the whole, I call it fondly the Swiss cheese investigation, because I've never heard or seen this much so many holes in an investigation uh, and then uh, as graham uh, said uh, i then said well i need a lot more information before i really want to come up and see you uh, so he sent me and emailed me all the extra information and here i am so hence we are here on the 25th of march 2023 in redcliffe so we are at, at graham's um, residence graham crowley that is and also we have Joe Crowley, the barrister, you've heard from him several times throughout the podcast series. Graham Stafford and his partner Jackie are here with us. Hi, good to be here and thanks for everyone uh, for uh, coming up and um, doing all this hard work. And also present, we have Jeff and Rayleigh. So Graham, how did you meet Jeff and Rayleigh? I met Jeff through the Max Seeker podcast that I did, uh, Loose Ends. Jeff is the solicitor who worked pro bono for, well, and is still works pro bono for Max Seeker and has done for four years now, going Jeff, on right? Five years now. Going five years and a huge job. Anyone who's listened to the podcast, 31 episodes, would know how much work Jeff Johnson has put into that case. I just thought it'd be a good opportunity for Jeff to come up and meet Graham Stafford, meet Joe Crowley, and just say hi, really. It's been a pleasure to do that and bring Rayleigh along and she can listen to the reasons that somehow I get involved in these things from time <laughs> to time. And, um, you know, let me say one of the things that convinced me to eventually take on Max Seeker's case was the work that was done on Graham's case. It gave you the opportunity to seek justice and you're welcome. And we should also mention Jamie with your podcast, Beanham Valley Road. 
And Mark, you may or may not be aware of BVR. Have you heard of Beena Valley Road? No, not at all. Hmm. Well worth a listen. As a result of that podcast, the Queensland Police arrested a male last year and charged him with murder directly from that podcast, although some police would dispute that. It, without question, it was as a result of your podcast. Well done, mate. Uh, but also, we should hear a bit from uh, Joe Crowley, barrister. So we last spoke to you, it was probably halfway through the series, if we've got down more and more, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Nice to see you, Jamie. Graham Crowley, Graham Stafford, and Mark. Yeah, I think I did a program towards the end about the review report, which Graham Crowley and I dissected. Yes, the famous, or should I say, infamous police review. All right, so, Graham, let's dive straight in. Uh, we realise you have a flight, Mark, at, well, four o'clock or something, you said? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And again, you've done a huge thing coming up here, and really appreciate that. No worries. And, um, Graham, would you like to start digging into what Mark uncovered? Well, I don't know what Mark's going to tell us. We have had discussions, but he didn't actually say what you found. I hope it's going to be all good. Yeah, well, uh, look, uh, we obviously discussed all the copious amounts of evidence that was presented and so on, and there were probably half a dozen points uh, which after the third listening of every episode uh, of the podcast, that I kept coming back to these particular points of evidence. One of the big ones to me was to pinpoint exactly where Leanne was, and it was disputed by the Crown, which was the attendance or alleged non-attendance of her at the bank. Now, I made inquiries to banks in Melbourne as to what CCTV as it's known now, or basic video camera work that they had, uh, did they have it in 91 and so on? They did. So, of course, my question, and I haven't contacted the banking goodner, of course, but if there was CCTV there, well, where is it? Why was it investigated? I can't find any record of any investigation into any CCTV. So that was one of the main ones, and, and that stuck in my head for quite some time because the, um, the location of where Leanne was at that particular point of time and why the recipient of the money said, well, no, I actually went there, it just didn't ring true. So that was one of the first ones. The second one, and I thought was the biggest one, was the methodology of investigation and methodology of crime scene preservation and crime scene investigation. Now... Uh, I was saying to Graham uh, Stafford uh, before we came on air that I would be very interested to find out in the past murder and or rape cases by QPS, and by past I mean maybe within the past five years, so 86 onwards, how many of those cases, what their methodology of crime scene preservation and everything was. And if it was spot on and if they ticked most of the boxes, well, Wine Heaven's name was this particular one, one out of the box. So the only way we could find out that methodology of investigation would be, unfortunately, would have to go through each one of those cases and see if those boxes were correctly ticked off, i.e., yes, the crime scene tape was put off, but of course, as we all know, there was no, usually a uniform officer theirs with, there with a crime scene log ticking members, 
detectives and any other uniformed members or officers coming into the crime scene and ticking them off when they go out. Well, there was none of that done. In previous cases, had that been done? And if so, why is it this particular case, the Holland case, that none of that was done? So that was a big sticking point uh, for me. The other sticking point for me was this, the white ambulance, to me again, a big sticking point, where had it disappeared to? There couldn't have been that many in Queensland at the time, assuming it was registered in Queensland. The follow-up of that was a big sticking point. So those were the the main ones. Uh, And, of course, I attempted to do a timeline of where the four suspects were. And, of course, I can't get a timeline on the two main ones because there were no witness statements or anything taken, no verbal statements, nothing. Now, as a former sergeant in Victoria Police, I was given the delightful duty of uh, taking care of the sex offenders registry down at my last posting in East Gippsland. I'd never done it before, but I got a very good feel of what is done about the interviews that have to be done and so on and so on. And any or most cases involving sexual assault, indecent assault and so on, well, then we go to each one of those offenders uh, or previous offenders close by and have a chat with them. Well, none of that was done either. And to me, those were the big parts of the case which led me to the final conclusion was that, uh, as I said to Graham uh, Crowley, that uh, command obviously has to be held accountable for this. How are they going to be held accountable? Who knows at this stage? So that's where I got to it uh, with, and that those were my findings out of it. I discounted a lot of evidence. The maggot was just a red herring to me. It was just, I didn't think it had much weight on it whatsoever. I did a complete timeline of Mr. Stafford and ticked all the boxes. I spent a total of, uh, I'm, I'm approximating two to three hours on Graham Stafford, where he was, and so on and so on. All the boxes were ticked, nothing to do with it. I then moved on to the other suspects and because of the lack of statements and so on, I couldn't put a timeline on those individuals. I basically set it up like a chessboard and went at 8am, everyone was here, 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 here. At 8.30am, everyone was here, here and went all the way down for two days. But without those statements or any other knowledge of where those people were, I've got no idea where those people were. So that was pretty much about it. So as you were listening to the podcast, did you go through phases of who you thought might have been good for it? No. Basically, again, as I said, I was only made aware of this with my next door neighbours. They'd gone through it all just the once and they, all four of them agreed, yeah, it was this bloke. And I went, yeah, right, sure enough. Towards the latter part of my investigation, mainly because of the weight of Leanne was, I think, 42.6 kilos. Well, that's normal weight, not dead weight. Dead weight is, I'll say, significantly heavier. So 42.6 kilos, and I'm now, I've been a personal trainer since retiring from the place, is around anywhere between 50 and 60 kilos. Now, that's a heavy weight to be lifting. So this is what led me to believe that there's possibly two people involved in the removal 
not necessarily the murder of, but the removal of Leanne's body. And those people you're referring to, have we spoke about them during the podcast or are these people that you've come across in your own investigation or we haven't even touched No, that you've spoken. Yeah. Uh, PP yeah. uh, is the main one, obviously, which, again, so going back to your original question, sorry, was they'd let my friends listen to it and we all agreed it was this bloke. I agreed with them later on the, on the third hearing and I zeroed on in on Leanne's weight. Uh, I just felt that there was quite possibly two people involved in her dumping of her body to the site. But, no, it took me to the second hearing to just, yeah, definitely decide that it was our man. You're amongst friends, Mark. You can name them. Yeah, so, yeah, Peter Pete was the obvious one. But the as to which of the other two, the information that I read in the email, that words were spoken about who was in the jail at the time and allegedly someone said, well, the killer of Leanne Ollins right here in jail, mate. So that was interesting. And I've only been in receipt of that information for about 24 hours, so I'm still yet to process that. Uh, yeah, so that was my ultimate conclusion. Now, I've, I'm not a detective by any stretch of the imagination and, to be honest, wouldn't want to be, but I've got quite a few friends who are. Being a sergeant, I was privy to and had to check a number of briefs of evidence before they went to the prosecutors. And so I try to pride myself on looking at the briefs of evidence, even for simple summary assaults or thefts and so on, that every box was ticked by the various members and this is what uh, I did with this particular case so as I said before that yeah I've got reservations that there was just one player in the game. And as a former VicPol member you did several decades of service what do you think of Pedo Pete's alleged relationship with other police officers like having barbecues with them and stuff like that What, what do you make of that? Yeah well it's I've never heard of it before Apart from the fact that, yeah, there were police members wandering all over the site, that's all very well, but the crime scene log wasn't there. But for this Pete bloke to be wandering around it, and I've identified him now, but I know what he wears and all the rest of it, um, I don't know what what previous uh, matters as an informant for QPS, how deep that goes, how deep of an informant uh, he is. But the dealings that he's had with, especially command, one particular member uh, especially, I don't know how that commander in superintendent, whatever his rank is, could let that bloke not only into a crime scene but go and have a few beers with him. Christ's sake. Yes, uh, a lot of question marks over that relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, I've never heard of anything high-ranking official of, a police service, to call him, I believe he's called him a mate, that I just don't get that and I'm, I'm dumbfounded. In fact, I'm probably speaking more about it than I need to because I'm just I'm lost for words and how that can actually occur. He actually went further than that and gave him a reference. Yeah. I have some questions if you don't mind. Go for your life. First one is the CCTV. Joe or Graham, you may be able to answer that. I have no recollection of any discussion anywhere about CCTV coming from the bank. Do you, either of you? I don't recall any either. No, I, I can't recall it either. I just checked the uh, police review, 
the well the redacted police review, and there's no mention of the words CCTV surveillance or anything like that in that report. You're right, Mark. There probably should have been CCTV in that bank at that time. Well, um, weren't we having a discussion about there being CCTV footage at the car wash? Correct. So if the car wash had it, presumably the bank would have had Correct. it. Correct. And the police have the CCTV from the car wash, which has never, ever seen the light of day. Yeah, and I'd probably venture to say or further that the quality of the CCTV at the bank would probably be superior to that at the car wash, simply by the costings, uh, and it wouldn't be just the branch, it would be come from the Commonwealth Bank all over Australia to fund it, and they would, I assume, would want to have the best quality or a better quality CCTV than they did it. And I'm not aware of the quality at the car wash, but uh, it, it just stuck in my mind that that could have solved not the crime as such, but certainly would have put to case any of these, the QPS prosecutors uh, saying it wasn't Leanne at the bank, which it had to be. Yeah, the the bank there were just too issue many. Is a, is a big one in this case. I, I yeah, look, I, I think it's just one of the. I think it's one of the biggest ones personally. Uh, aside from those other things I mentioned, um, you've got the stamp of the teller. Uh, and as has already been discussed, that uh, there were no male tellers on that day. Had the CCTV been there? And the documents, hey Jeff, the documents is the big one. Absolutely, highly important. I mean, talking about the CCTV, it rings true with one of the first things I found when I looked at the Seeker case. The Crown alleged he deliberately lied about the time he turned up on the Tuesday when the bodies were found. One of the key factors to that that jumped out at me was he delivered his sister to Stafford City Shopping Plaza where I ascertained there was CCTV footage. When I went to the job logs and the running sheet, three weeks after the bodies were found, an officer was designated to go to the shopping centre to see if he could get CCTV footage. None but it was there. He either had not made the inquiry, which I suspect was the case, or if he had, it wasn't convenient to produce the CCTV footage because independently I was able to ascertain that not only did the shopping centre have CCTV footage, but interestingly, from your point of view, Graham, the bank that was on the front of the shopping centre had CCTV footage at its ATM machine, which was exactly where Seeker dropped his sister off on that particular day. When I queried the lawyers who acted for Seeker at trial, had made no inquiries about it. When I went back to the questioning, at least I'll give DiCarlo credit that he questioned the lead detective about CCTV footage at the committal hearing, and seriously, the detective, let me be kind, misled DiCarlo, misled the court with respect to the inquiries that were made about CCTV footage, including not specifically naming the officer who was designated to get it and identifying a number of job logs other than the job log that issued the instruction to get the CCTV footage. All ignored. And yet, despite the judge's directions 
with respect to the evidence that needed to be produced to establish deliberate lying, none of that was produced to the court in Seeker's case. Too similar, isn't it? Mark, you raised a valid point about dead weight. I agree. Leanne's weight was 42 kilos. Always had in my mind that, yes, moving a dead body is different to someone being alive. Now, I heard you say that would be the equivalent of 50 or 60 kilos. Look, I think it would top out at 60, but the, it's just the with arms and limbs, literally obviously mm. just hanging down. Yep. Compared to a barbell with two 20-kilo uh, plates on it, to lift that up, you've got a solid grip of the barbell and you can lift straight up, uh, no drums at all. And that, that's as good as dead weight. Well, that's just 40 kilos. Mm. So Leanne being 40 that's 42, 42.6, whatever I read now, with arms and legs mm. all over the place, uh, I would be suggest that it's closer to 50, 55 kilos mm. uh, of dead weight. Now, that would have to be – that's only a guesstimation by me. It would be a matter of grabbing a probably a pig carcass or something similar mm. intact with its all of its hoofs and trying to lift that, and I'd be curious to see who could do that comfortably. So that was just a little – not a sticking point, but just a minor point which came across my mind, and I think I, that came across on my third listening of the uh, podcast, just the weight of Leanne. That's an interesting point you raised about the pig carcasses. Uh, I mentioned before, we get heaps and heaps of feedback from listeners, comments on the Facebook page, comments on the web page, emails to me personally. There's a listener called Dale from um, Cairns who I love their research skills. Dale sent me a link in December last year of a study done in Canada on pig carcasses. And the study, it was peer-reviewed. The study was called The Impact of Confinement in Vehicle Trunks on Decomposition and Entomological Colonisation of Carcasses. In other words, they had six pig carcasses, three were the control group and three were carcasses they placed in the boots of cars. The control group were left out in the open. And what they wanted to do was compare the rate of blowfly attack and larvae growth on the control group and on the carcasses placed in the boot. This study I found was very, very relevant for the Holland case because it's alleged that Graham Stafford put Leanne's body in the boot of his car and left it there for two days before dumping the body. The study found that the control group, that is the carcasses that were out in the open, were subject to blowfly attack almost immediately, larvae growth almost immediately in the the carcasses they put in the boots of cars, it took three to six days for blowflies to attack and for larvae to be sighted. So it just further definitive proof in my view that the body was never in the boot of that car. It was left somewhere where it was available to blowflies, hence they found the maggots on the Thursday when the body was found. The evidence from that study, 
I think is very, very supportive of the fact the body was never in the boot of Graham Stafford's car. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm going to put the link to that study on the webpage and on the Facebook page. So if anyone wants to have a read of it, it's only 12 pages, but it's very, very informative and it's well worth a view and a read. Thanks, Dale from Cairns. So, Joe Crowley, uh, as we've discussed, no relation to Graham Crowley. I think distant relation. <laughs> I haven't spoken to you for quite some time. Since we did a few episodes on the redacted review and some of the points that Mark's just raised, where do you think we stand legally or where are you at, at the moment with this whole debacle? Well, I understand uh, another request for a coronial inquest into Leanne Horn's death has been made to the Attorney General very recently. Graham Crowley pointed that out to me. So we'll see how that goes. I was very interested in Mark talking about the crime scene because one of the things we raised in the petition was the terrible way the crime scene was um, handled and the exhibits were handled and then some exhibits photographed but not even taken. When we got to the appeal, we had to abandon it because in a court, unless you can directly show that some particular failure in the investigation has led to the wrong person, you know, your client being wrongly convicted. Courts aren't interested in it. They're not interested in general complaints about how poor an investigation is. So there was a whole sort of aspect of the pardon petition which we never argued on appeal. A couple of things that, that jumped out at me, well, that I remember, they were the probably big ticket items. They were things that were photographed. So um, Leanne Holland's body is found at Red Bank. The police arrive. They put up some crime scene tape and then they start looking around for things and they find some tyre tracks which they take photos of but they then find other things which they photograph which the police photographer photographs so for example a cigarette lighter is found plus cigarette butts are found and they are photographed and then when you go and look at the items that are taken from the crime scene they're not collected it loomed large later on because certainly pedophile Peter I think was a smoker and was at the crime scene Cigarette lighter had on it a uh, where it was bought from. It was uh, you know from some news agent in Goodna, you know, and there was sort of those kinds of lines of inquiry which were. I mean, the the cigarette butts presumably could have had some kind of test done on them. I think DNA was probably in its infancy, so maybe not a DNA test, but something to to see if they could uh, uh, you know identify possibly who left them there. And so, sort of the missed opportunities of finding out who was at the crime scene, whether they were the killer or helping the killer or 
I don't know, but, you know, those kind of missed opportunities, which we couldn't argue in the court, but uh, certainly from an investigative point of view, kind of thing that Mark's talking about, were things that really could have helped in the end. Yeah, and also the they weren't just just cigarette butts. There was a part of the cigarette left, so the type of cigarette. And then with the type of cigarette, well, who smokes those, that type of cigarette, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they, as you said, correctly that the um, those cigarettes, like the CCTV, could have gone a long way to help maybe not solve it, but go a long way to helping solve the, the particular thing. But probably one of the final things I'll, unless I'm asked questions about it, that I'll say is that everyone's done something wrong in their lives and made a mistake. You make a mistake and you learn from it and you go on. So I don't see the difficulty personally in Queensland Police Service just realising they've made a mistake, admitting they've made a mistake, and then actually go a long way to say, well, we're going to fix this up. We're actually going to show the public how good a police service we are and we will fix the mistake after admitting they've made a mistake and then hopefully help solve this whole mess. Uh, So just the admittance of a mistake would, I think, go a long way to help solving this. I don't see the big drama about it all. Yes, they'll be embarrassed, but everyone will forget about it in four or five months and they'll continue on. So let's get this done. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a terrible shame because uh, missed opportunities with the CCTV, obviously they get wiped after a certain amount of time depending on where it is and also the cigarette butts. I mean, if they had been taken into possession and we know what we know now, we could have taken a DNA sample and um, the lighter as well, fingerprints and whatnot. But yeah, add to your point, Joe, yeah, um, Pedo Pete did smoke, but he's also known to inflict smileys, were, you know, burn with a lighter on people, on his daughter, I believe it was. So yeah, again... Another missed opportunity there. Was there any other points of the redacted review that really got you going, Joe? Oh, look, it was a a very long, boring document, and I think deliberately so, which sort of, you know, avoids uh, or or minimises important information and then uh, goes into great detail about stuff that's completely irrelevant. Uh, I mean, the redactions I found annoying because – they redacted the names of the witnesses. Um, it was a public trial. The, the witnesses came and gave evidence in a public forum. And Graham Crowley and I know all the names of the witnesses because we have the trial transcript. So it was just annoying for, the, the, for them to do things like that. I mean, I just think petty too. I mean, I don't, there, was, there seemed to be no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, they redact the names of the scientists who do the sort of follow-up tests and stuff that they did. And that's fine. Maybe those scientists don't want to be known. But, you know, I mean, I thought the scientific method was about Somebody conducts a experiment and then publicizes it in a way that other people can then go and can, you know, do the same experiment to see if they get the same result. So it doesn't bode well for the, the reliability of the scientific information they find when the police are happy to tell us what the answer that, they, that the scientists got were, but not who the scientists were or how they you know, reached that conclusion. So, yeah, I mean, it was frustrating that, to that extent as well. Mark, you mentioned before about the white ambulance Graham Stafford related a short story earlier about a friend, actually, or a schoolmate, an old schoolmate who's got a white ambulance. Is that the story? Actually, um, no. The friend um, who contacted me, I used to work with back in the early 80s when I was doing my apprenticeship, and he had some electrical work done on his truck because he drives trucks, and he said, you won't believe who I've had working on my truck. It's the guy who used to do the auto electrics 
back when we were apprentices at Noise Brothers. Anyway, he says, he's got a fascinating story to tell you. You'll, you'll have to give him a ring. And I thought, oh, this is probably going to be a bit long-winded. Rang the guy and he's a guy I haven't seen for probably close to 40 years, 30, 40 years. Didn't know all that well other than through work scenario. I never um, socialised with him at all. He told me that uh, five years ago the police had been in contact with him uh, asking about a white ambulance that he um, once had. Funnily enough, he still has it, but it, the transmission's stuffed and he hasn't um, used it for quite a number of years. But anyway, uh, they wanted to know that if he'd ever lent it to me. And he said, well, I've never seen him for so long. And I bought it off my brother and it was in... I told, he told them what year he bought it. It was five years after um, Leanne had been murdered. So it was like a dead end, but they were determined to go with this white ambulance somehow, some way, you know. Yeah, trying to make the evidence fit, fit you. Exactly. Yeah. How does it feel after talked about the redacted review that Graham Crowley and I um, discussed on the podcast and with the recent years gone by and also Mark's conclusions and flying up being an ex-copper himself. How does it feel? Does it feel validating to have other people in your corner, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. I appreciate the work that everyone's done. Um, I'm I'm sort of glad that somebody's finally focused on the fact that uh, I just wouldn't have been able to... um, carry 40 50 kilo i mean at work now i'm i'm flat out throwing 20 kilos above my head you know that's double that weight i find it unbelievable that they haven't sort of thought of that beforehand you know and the only suggestion they've ever had is like oh maybe you had help and they sort of inferred that maybe uh, jack's dad was involved sort of thing i mean you know he was an old man and it's just they're just Clutching at straws. How much do you weigh? I now or, or then? Back back in 1991? <laughs> uh, back then I was probably um, 55, 58 kilo. How tall are you, Graham? I'm five foot two. I've still got my old driver's licence, but I'm not going to provide it because back then you got one shot at it and it looks like I'm on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, for a man of Graham's physical stature to lift that weight you'd be doing bloody well to lift that weight and lifting it isn't the problem it's carrying it without being seen as well down down the stairs across the road from a busy road and a pub so is there any points that you've heard mark talk about or graham talk about or joe talk about that haunt you or that you find yourselves obsessing about like um, well, certainly, like I, I just mentioned about the weight thing, because obviously over the years I've sort of done a little bit of weightlifting, not, not just to try and stay fit and that, and I just knew that um, I actually had, um, we had friends come up a few years ago now, her daughter, because we we're obviously talking about the podcast, and I asked her how much she weighed, and I, I actually tried lifting her off the floor and couldn't do it, and she was around 40, 45 kilos, something like that. And that's not, as you call it, dead weight. I mentioned before we get many, many emails and feedback and comments. There's another one I received last year from a prison officer, a female prison officer. I thought it was particularly relevant. I'll get Sue to read it out. 
Good morning. I've been listening to your podcast about the Leanne Holland case. I'm up to Chapter 5. I worked at the Morton Correctional Centre when Graham Stafford was there. Morton was a protection prison holding sex offenders, dogs and inmates that were deemed at risk of suffering violence from other prisoners. At the time, I was doing my psychiatric nursing certificate at the Woolston Park Hospital. I was moonlighting at the prison and and I did quite a number of casual shifts there. I also had a placement at John Oxley, which at the time was a hospital for the criminally insane, where Sean McFedrin was trying to avoid being found responsible for Julie's murder. I have often thought about both of these men and told people I have worked with about them. I have always remembered Graham because one day when I was down in the wings giving tablets, one of the inmates was telling me that he was innocent of his crime. Another inmate said, there's only one innocent man in this prison and that's him. And he pointed to Graham Stafford who happened to be walking past. The inmate said, and that's because the guy who really did it is, is here. Graham heard him and turned around but kept on walking. I've had brief dealings with Graham before, most likely to give him his medications, though I don't remember exactly, but I'd always found him to be calm, respectful and polite. This stuck with me because it was unusual that an inmate would say that about another inmate and also because of Graham's demeanour. Sean McFedrin I remembered because he was so odious. He was a fat, petulant creep whom the nurses were convinced was faking his symptoms and had the psychologists fooled, they often are in the hope they can change people, that he did not belong in prison. I remember telling her he didn't need to be there at John Oxley, and she'd said, do you know that they'd do to him if he went to prison? I told her that, yes, I did know because I worked there, and he'd fit right in with the others. Sean did go to prison soon after. Dr Peter Farmer had finished his assessment of him and found him fit to go. I'm not looking for fame or anything at all. I just thought that maybe if one of the other suspects was incarcerated at the same time as Graham, that may help him in identifying the real murderer. Sean McFedrin, I just wanted to tell you about because he was just such a pig of a man. Well, that's, um, that's quite um, – I, I mean, I, I know I've heard that before, but I think uh, – it's probably a good point to uh, mention that um, at one point while I was in a, uh, Morton A Yard, I actually um, asked Sean if he um, knew Leanne and made sure I had a witness with me at that time. And he said no, he, he didn't know her at all, which is kind of interesting because we know that uh, wasn't true. He uh, used to play with both her and Trish down at the uh, caravan park. Um, as far as him getting beat up at uh, Morton, he was a big, big, like, big and huge sort of, not necessarily tall sort of fellow. And when he was brought to the yard, before they actually let him in, an officer by the name of um, Paul Everly um, must have uh, contacted sentence management. And I was called out to have a uh, discussion with... Uh, Eva King, who was the uh, coordinator of sentence management at that time. And I had to walk down the vestibule to go to the right and I saw this bloke who I obviously didn't know at the time rocking in a chair on the left-hand side and um, 
anyway, I sat down <clears throat> and she basically said, we hear you're going to have, uh, you're going to bash Sean McFedrin. And I said, is that the guy in the other room over there? And she said, yes. I said, you're kidding, aren't you? I said, the guy would sit on me. He was huge. And, and I actually, over the years, I actually saw him get into a fight, well, a, a scuffle with uh, another guy and he basically lifted this heavy, heavy chair and threw it at him and the guy that he was scuffling with used to go around telling everybody, whether it's true or not, that he was a black belt in some karate or whatever and Sean got the better of him. So there you go. That's my Sean story. You know, the frustrating thing out of all this is the Queensland Police had an opportunity to fix this mess in 2010 when they did that review. They had an opportunity to fix this sorry mess and they didn't take it. And that's what I find really, really frustrating with this case. Yeah, for me, the the main point that sticks out to me is the uh, bank teller, as you touched on, Mark. I just can't let that one go. It's it's uh, bulletproof, you know. But how do they uh, how do they get around it? And they seem to do that with their review, but obviously we don't buy that. But yeah, it's very frustrating that that slipped through the cracks. Yeah, once again in the review, they just said, "Oh, the bank teller was mistaken." Mm. And totally ignored, did not mention the paper trail. Totally ignored the paper trail. Well, didn't they lose the original uh, back, back into yes. the police, lost the original? Didn't not realising that uh, she'd photocopied it? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I was just looking at the points. I mean, we didn't go through the back of the murder, arrest and conviction, but, I mean, we've kind of touched on that a lot of times. It comes down to the QPS just doing the right thing, you know. Be a decent human and just do the right thing. And if they do that, this will be solved. It's not rocket science. They just have to do the right thing. And hence, while we are here, we are back to the drawing board. And in some sense, we're not. We're, you know, leaps and bounds ahead. But in another sense, we're actually back at the drawing board, aren't we? Because... Although we've, you know, Graham Stafford spent a decade and a half in, in prison, but now he's had his conviction quashed and then we've done a podcast and the reviews come out and but we're still back to that drawing board. Like, all right, well, where do we go from here? And we still don't have that definitive answer that we all started pursuing. A listener recently wrote to the Attorney General begging her to have a coronial inquest and she copied me into it. And I'm in the process of writing to the Attorney-General as well because I'm in this bizarre situation where I'm involved in three podcasts and all three podcasts require the urgent attention of the Attorney-General. How weird is that? Yeah, you could call it weird or that you just are like a dog with a bone and you like to... Mate, it's just the case the Attorney-General is not doing a job. She won't issue a coronial inquest on the Holland case. She won't refer the Seeker case to the Court of Appeal. And admittedly, with the Sandrine Jordan podcast, she's not aware yet, but she will be when she gets the email, that it really needs to go to a coroner's inquest. But wasn't the... Graham Stafford and Leanne Holland case, um, referring to that, 
they had a loophole because he was charged with it, so they didn't have to do a coronial inquest. But then since 2009, when his conviction's quashed, therefore it's unsolved. Initially, there was uh, a loophole. The Coroner's Act 1959 said that if someone was charged with the offence, the Attorney General did not necessarily have to refer it to an inquest. Do you agree with that, Joe? Yes, I agree with that. However, after his conviction was quashed, there's no one who's been charged for Leon Holland's murder and under the 1959 Act and under the 2003 Coroner's Act, particularly under the 1959 Act, the Attorney-General must hold a coroner's inquest. I think it's under Section 16. Is that right, Joe? You're testing me now, mate. I don't learn sections off by heart, but um, yeah, no, that sounds right. And uh, I mean, it's an unex- un- now an unexplained death. There's nobody who's legally um, responsible for it, so I think they should have a coronal inquest. We got this ridiculous situation. The Attorney General is actually breaking her own laws. She's the Coroner's Act says the Attorney General must hold an inquest. She refuses to, repeatedly refuses to. The government do tend to listen to um, victims. You know, the nobody, no parole laws which were brought in were um, due to victims pushing for that legislation. The Daniel Morecambe's parents have uh, done some great things in terms of um, pushing for an inquest into his, um, how it is the police got his investigation so wrong for so many years. So, I mean, if Melissa, uh, you know, said to the Attorney-General that she thought there should be an inquest... I reckon they'd do one. I wish someone would ask her. Yeah, well, we, we certainly tried. Well, we've certainly tried, but perhaps a listener is, um, knows Melissa Holland mm. and could ask her. Mm. All right. Was there any other topics we wanted to talk about before we conclude? The problems with the review or problems with the case before we sign off? Firstly, thanks. It's been really informative of... And interesting, Mark, uh, you've obviously done an enormous amount of work and having read most of, if not all, of the Stafford material, uh, I think you're spot on and uh, for what it may be worth. Yeah, I appreciate that. Coming from a person like yourself, uh, I really appreciate that. Great work. Graham knows uh, there's been a bit of to and froing with the Attorney-General over the past little bit concerning the latest... uh, uh, petition material with respect to Seeker. Interestingly, uh, it involves forensic evidence and it's mentioned in the podcast. Uh, there's, uh, there was initially a report from Professor DeFlo in respect of death by drowning because the male victim, Kanal Singh, died from drowning. Um, interestingly, going through the transcript, I've found a statement made by Dr Alumbi, who was the Crown pathologist at trial. And that statement was to the effect that had there been the evidence of external foam from the nostrils and mouth, which is clearly depicted in the crime scene photos, that would not have occurred after 24 hours from the time of death. Uh, Now, that evidence he gave only related to proving that the death occurred by drowning. At that time, it wasn't recognised 
that the appearance of that external phone could also assist with proving the time of death. There's been a second research paper out of Germany that Professor DeFlo referred through to me and has given a second opinion, and we've referred to it in the podcast. And that definitively found... They examined 1,500 cases of drownings by death. Now, only a small percentage of those had evidence of external foam emanating from the nostrils and mouth externally. But in not one case, not one, did that occur after 24 hours. So that all of those that were recognisable after the expiration of that 24 hours had no external foam. Some had internal foam, and that's apparently the accepted norm. For a period of time, the foam will stay in the air passages but won't appear externally. So that if the latest uh, petition material is again knocked back by the Attorney-General, it seems to me that either they've found... Uh, somebody to say that that's not the case, and if so, they haven't disclosed it to us. Or alternatively, Canal Singh's the only person in the world at this stage that's been identified with external foam emanating from the mouth and nostrils over 24 hours after death. So it'll be interesting to see how the Attorney-General deals with that latest expert report. And that's an update as to where we're at with the Seeker case. And for the benefit of the listeners who aren't familiar with the Seeker case, it's the Crown case that Max Seeker murdered those victims around 38 hours before they were found. So the significance of the plume, the nostril plume, only being available pre-24 hours is huge. I'll leave it at that. Looks like I've got another podcast to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, we got Loose Ends, Bring Home Sandrine. Loose Ends, the Singh Family Tragedy, and Bring Home Sandrine mm-hmm. is my current one. Yep, of course. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Um, really appreciate everyone giving the time today for us on this pleasant Saturday. It's very hot. We're, we're sweating all in here, I think. And, Mark, thank you so much for flying up from Melbourne to come and tell us what your your view of the case was. Thank you so much. Yeah, not a problem at all. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Got out of the Melbourne cold and up here to steaming hot Queensland. But, no, look, uh, thanks to everyone um, for coming along. Uh, it's As I said before, I only just picked this up as a, because the um, next-door neighbours picked it up. But uh, once I got into it, it looks like, as I said before, I've got another one to listen to, to get my teeth into. Uh, but I don't think my wife's going to allow me to put up all the butcher's well, paper on the, the bedroom walls this time. Yeah. Yeah, we'll move to another house. Absolutely. Thank you. And for the subway. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to it. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. The music for this episode was entirely produced by Bubba Beats. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. 
Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. And please, if you're enjoying the show, share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. And a special thanks to Yamaha Music Australia, Audio Technica Australia, Zoom Australia, Isotope and Sound Theory.